Uh, this morning, what, uh, what we're going to do is something that we haven't really done, I don't think, in the history of Antioch. Uh, last week, we never really got to any kind of practical things. And so last Sunday, kind of walking away from church, I was like, maybe it'd be fun if we just did a whole sermon and it was just all practical things, like 1990s fill-in-the-blank style. And so I was like, yeah, let's do that. So uh, here we go. This is like open up your bulletin, get out the, the notes page, turn it to the back, you'll see it. Um, we got a lot of places for you to just kind of fill in the blank. And we're just going to try and, these are by no means the kind of, you know, if I'd have done 10, you would have thought like this is the, like the 10 commandments on stone. This isn't on stone, there's only like eight. Um, it's not a holy number, so right off the bat, you know it's not too spiritual. Um, if that had been three, seven, or 10, it would have been a spiritual number. Uh, but, but we're just going to walk through these things, and these are just some really practical things that I think we can maybe talk about, think about, pray about in this whole quest. This series is called After You Believe, this whole quest to, in some sense, grow. It, I mean, that's just really what we want to do is we want to grow up in, in our relationship with God, and, and hopefully these are some practical things. The first one is this, ask the right questions. Ask the right question. We need to learn how to ask the right question. Um, we're always trying to figure out what to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. And usually when people come to me and they say, okay, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, what do I do? I kind of say, well, you're doing it. I mean, just the fact that you're freaking out about wanting to like be used by God or do something meaningful for God kind of means that you're there. Like that's, that's the real hard part. The rest of it, God will kind of just orchestrate. But the real hard part is just really kind of um, saying yes and, and not always kind of doing, doing, doing. And so in some sense, we got to learn to ask the right question. And when we do, it, it stills us. It kind of slows us down and we, we focus on being just a little bit more. Habakkuk 2.20 um, says this. It says, uh, the Lord is in his holy temple. So let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There's a real sense in which when we want to grow, we think it's all about doing, us doing the action, when the reality is a lot of it is, is us just being changed from the inside. The word behold, which really has to do with kind of worship and seeing God behold, uh, the whole idea of growing up in the Lord, the word become, both of these words have to be in them, not to do, you know, like we're human beings, not uh, human to doings or whatever. Like it, there's a sense in which we have to be grounded and anchored and allow that change to happen. It says uh, in Philippians that, you know, with fear and trembling, we're supposed to work out our salvation. But then it reminds us, but it's God who works in us. Okay, and, and so the first thing we have to do is I think we have to just slow ourselves down. You, you know the college girl that gets super overexcited and comes up to you and just starts like talking like crazy and then she starts saying like, oh, I'm sorry, I always do that. I talk too much, I talk too much. You know what my aunt says? And then she's like talking like crazy about what her aunt says about talking too much. And then she says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm doing it again. And, and pretty soon you're just like, slow down. Like, whoa, um, just... Cut it off. And, and I think God tries to do that to us sometimes. We're so busy trying to tell God how we're about to get it all going and, and how that last time we screwed it up, like, doesn't really matter. Like, I'm, this is it, and I'm excited, and this is why this is different. And we just get all wound up. And I think sometimes it's just, just God's just like, just slow down. Just settle down. Be silent. I'm here. Um, and that's what you need to really understand and realize. That's... That's the right question. It's not what to do, what to do, what to say, what to say. It's just um, let me be in the presence of God. We become what we behold. Uh, in some sense, the proximity to God is what changes us. The vine and the branches tells us that. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. As you are in me, that's what produces all the, fr the fruit and changes it all. Um, so, I mean, we really got to understand this whole thing and just slow it down and, and be and exist in the proximity. And we got to learn to ask the right question. We can start from there. You know, the, the whole Old Testament was built around this idea of sacrifice, bring your sacrifice to God, because in bringing a sacrifice or an offering, 
you're, you're showing how big God is because you're putting him first. You're, you're making a sacrifice. This is a painful thing, but he's worth it. Does, does that make sense? But if you do it long enough, it can become routine, and you're no longer even seeing God in it. You're just doing the routine. And so the irony was when the prophets came around, this thing, the offering, the sacrifices, which was so important to make sure that God was big, um, had become this, this, this rote thing, this routine thing. And God started saying, I don't desire your sacrifices. I don't desire burnt offerings. Like, what you're doing for me is not really what I care about. What I cared about was your heart. What I cared about was, was what was going on inside of you and, and how you felt about me and how you, you saw me. And just this action really wasn't what I was about. And so I think sometimes we have to kind of still ourselves and realize that a lot of these actions that are, that are spiritual actions, however good they are, isn't what really God's after. He's, he's after um, our hearts. And so we need to ask the right question. Second one is this, um, read. <laughs> read. You need to read, read, and read more. First thing we need to read is the Bible. And now it sounds like Sunday school, right? Um, Matthew 4.4, 4, Jesus says this, and this is kind of that famous little story or narrative of his time being tempted. And as he's going back and forth with Satan or the devil, and you know the devil's trying to tempt him, and Jesus is kind of pushing back, and it's this kind of epic thing. And in one of these parts, Jesus says, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The funny thing was, was, was the devil was throwing scripture at Jesus. Um, like, hey, it wasn't it said that. And then Jesus is coming back with scripture. And the, fu- the funny thing about this whole... Uh, story is we, we know that Jesus quotes scripture and so we're like, yeah, yeah, he kind of quotes scripture. But if you really think about the irony of that, you quote somebody when you try to ground your knowledge of them, to, to say that you're getting it right, to borrow their authority. Does that make sense? Like that's when you quote somebody. Both of these people in this story, the combatants in some sense, Know God better than any other living creature knows God. These two people are the two people, the two individuals that know God better than any other person um, or individual knows God. And so why quote scripture? Wasn't scripture in some sense given for people that didn't know God? I mean, it's kind of ironic, right? They're like, they're battling. They both know God like the best, but they're both appealing to Scripture, and Jesus is taking it in context. The devil's taking it out of context. But the context of Scripture and the truth of Scripture is so authoritative that it grounds who's right and who's wrong of these two people that are so elevated that they both know God better than anybody else. Is that, I mean, you getting the irony of this? Um. This phrase, it is written, is, is, shows up in, in the Bible over 160 times. All throughout the Old Testament, and then Jesus brings it in in the New Testament. It has always been the phrase to, to ground or locate truth. It's, it's we reach back and it is written, it is said, um, that is the source of truth. And so... This whole idea of, of trying to know God or trying to know truth and looking for it somewhere other than starting in Scripture is really kind of an, an ironic thing. And I, I know a lot of Christians and I meet a lot of Christians and it's kind of a part and parcel of the last hundred years of, of, of the... Uh, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way. There's a lot of... Every, every movement has positives and negatives, Okay. So this isn't, this isn't a slam, but the charismatic movement for the last hundred years, which brought a lot of positives, a real recognition of the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, 
our ability to have an intimacy with God that, that was lacking or is lacking in a lot more conservative or stale churches. But one of these things that came about with, with that movement was the idea that I don't need to really study Scripture because I can get truth right here. I can just, I can just pray or listen, and that's where I'm going to get it. And, and that, if you look at it historically is walking away from one of the things that has always been a part of Christianity is that even the most intimate people, even the people who knew God most intimately, still pointed back to Scripture, the right reading and the right, the right interpretation and, and the context, and saying, this is truth. What I say, what I feel, what I think, what I believe has to, has to in some sense, harmonize with Scripture. And... And so scripture becomes the real litmus test in some sense. Nothing can really violate that and be said to be of God. It's, it's really the thing we point to. And so we have to kind of remember that. Last week during Redux, someone asked a question about this. And, and it was um, kind of a, an interesting thing. Quoted B.B. Um, Warfield. And B.B. Warfield was the was a Princeton professor back in kind of the golden years of Princeton theology. And one of the things he said is he was told that, that 10 minutes on your knees in prayer was worth 10 hours of study uh, in the Bible. You know God better through 10 minutes in prayer on your knees than you do through 10 minutes of, of theological study in Scripture. And Warfield's answer to that was, well, then we better read the Bible on our knees. And there's a wisdom there um, that we, I mean, it's silly to pit one thing against the other. And, and extremes are never a good thing. In Ecclesiastes, it says, the man who fears God avoids all extremes. Uh, it really is not a mark of, of maturity or wisdom to get way off on an extreme. And so we've got to realize that there's an amazing beauty uh, to solitude and to prayer into that, that intimacy with God and listening to God and the Spirit. And, but Scripture is, is, has always been the grounding of truth. And so you've got Jesus and the devil um, going, both going back to Scripture to see who's going to win this kind of battle of, of truth. It is written. So we need to learn to read. Uh, we need to read the Bible first and foremost. I, I, when I was a college pastor, it was like, Every college student wanted to grow in their relationship with God, and they wanted to grow the fastest way possible, and they would always pick up a book other than the Bible. And one of the things that I had to teach those college kids was, you pick up another book after you, you're reading the Bible. Like, you've got to develop this discipline or this habit of reading Scripture, knowing Scripture, and then you read, like, other literature. But if you just always cut to other literature, these it's not the same. It's not living in some sense. God doesn't speak through it in some sense the same way he does with the Bible. And so it's really kind of a, a funny thing that we've just lost this, this uh, ability to read the Bible and get excited about it. Here's one of the reasons I think that is. Uh, the statistic is that every Christian, um, the average Christian in America has three Bibles. Okay, So you have the big fat one that you got for Christmas one year that has like 2,000 years of Christian whatever packed into it. Um, and so you never use it. And then you have the one that was given to you free somewhere, and so it's kind of cheap, and, and now it's all yellow and, and smells funny, so you don't really use it. And then you have the Bible that you had when you were like a junior high or a high schooler, and when you look at that one, you're frustrated that when you used to underline things, you didn't do it straight, or you used too many different colors, and now it looks like really childish and so you don't read that one anymore because it bothers you and so you don't really value any of these bibles you got so i think what we need to learn to do as christians is take all three of those bibles and give them away to someone who needs them more and then go down to the store and buy the coolest bible you can find the coolest leather the best translation um just the one that smells the best, whatever it is, the best pictures, uh, but buy the coolest Bible you can find so that you actually value again this book that you're supposed to be reading because we really are that silly. Um, and we just need to, I mean, we just need to 
embrace that and realize that we judge books by the cover and that we like to value objects and collect cool objects. So this object that's that valuable, if we have the ability, let's get a cool one because we're just going to value it that much more. And then we'll bless somebody with those three other Bibles that we're not reading. But so we just need to, um, we need to get back to that. Uh, it's a discipline we've got to come back to. And then we do need to read Christian books other than the Bible. Um, not in front of the Bible, but we still need to read them. And so um, we try to do that. And if you ever want a book recommendation on anything, just email the pastors. We'd love to get you a book recommendation. There's a lot of amazing Christian literature out there. There's a lot of bad Christian literature out there. Uh, and I, f- I really feel like one of the jobs of a modern pastor is to help a congreg- the, the congregation or um, learn or, or find the right literature and avoid the wrong literature. Because if you don't know, I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. So anyways, the second thing is read. Ask the right question. Second thing is read. Third thing is make prayer a habit. Make prayer a habit. It says in um, Thessalonians this, it says, be joyful always. Uh, how's that for a Christian manifesto, by the way? Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Um, there's two phrases there that are really interesting to me. Pray continually. It's, it's, it's emphatic. It's you are to pray continually. You, if you're a Christian, even if you're a new Christian, even if you're a hurting Christian, whatever kind of Christian you are, are to pray continually. Um, this is actually God's will for you. So this whole idea of, man, I wish I knew God's will for me. What's his plan for my life? Like, I really just wish I knew the steps and, and could map it out. Like, okay, this is a part of it. If you are a Christian, God's will for you is that you have the discipline of not praying before meals, <laughs> of not praying before Bible study starts, but of praying continually. Uh, I think it's something that we've learned to just kind of gloss over and not really feel the full force of that. But we're supposed to pray continually. So we need to make prayer a habit. I mean, is that, fa- is that fair? Make prayer a habit. We're supposed to do this, which means it's supposed to be habitual, a habitual part of our, our nature. If it's not right now, for, and for most of us, it might not be. So therefore, we should try, expend energy to make prayer a habit. If uh, I've told you before the story of how I... I I mean, I didn't really use utensils right when I got married, and I didn't think Tamara was going to care. My mom always told me that my wife was going to care, and I thought she was crazy, and then I found someone, and she did care. <laughs> um, it's not like I ate with my hands or anything, but um, I just didn't have, I guess, the right table manners. So Tamara set out day one to, like, fix me, and it really was a frustrating process. Uh, it made eating not fun anymore. You know, like, uh, and, but it, it mattered. And so there was pressure applied to the degree that I was forced to reconstitute my natural patterns or habits of doing things, okay, for how I held silverware, okay? How much more should we figure out how to have pressure applied to reconstitute our natural habits and patterns so that we pray continually. I mean, do we really talk that extreme in the church? I mean, we should, right? I mean, let's help each other, actually. I mean, this is the kind of thing where if we do it in love, I mean, we can really help each other become the people that are living out God's will for our lives. Um, by learning how to pray continually. I remember when I was an early Christian, I, I went back to, I, I worked at a Christian summer camp, which was in the Big Bear Mountains, which is a lot like Bend, Oregon. So I kind of was like these interns that are here this summer. And I spent a whole summer, and it was amazing. Like after dinner, every day I'd go on these walks, these big ponderosa pine trees. And every night we would take just the little camp mattress pads that they have. We'd throw them in the back of pickup trucks, go up in the mountains on the fire access roads and just throw them down and sleep underneath the stars. And, and you just fall asleep looking at stars and seeing shooting stars. And 
Um, it was an amazing time of prayer. And then I got back to college and I was finishing up my senior year of engineering and, and trying to get involved in ministry for the first time. And, and life was crazy. And I remember going to my campus, the guy that kind of ran this campus ministry I was a part of. And, and I went to him and I was like, man, I just, like it was so easy to pray when I was up uh, as a camp counselor. Like, I don't understand. What do I do now? Um, and, he, and he just says, it's real simple. He goes, you're, you're maturing and one of the things you have to do when you mature is you go from learning how to pray when nothing else is going on to learning how to pray when everything else is going on. Um, and that was probably one of the most profound pieces of wisdom I ever had was, was, was changing my mindset to prayer is something I do when I can create the space for it. To realizing prayer is something that if I really work at it is something I can do through all the things that are taking up my space. Uh, and, and it wasn't easy, but I started praying aloud in the car because your mind doesn't wander when you do that. It, people think you're weird, but, you know, I would pray out loud in the car. Like, it's weird to hear yourself pray, but I'd pray out loud in the car. People would think I was weird, but I, it's amazing. You don't break the conversation like you do when you're laying in bed and you're kind of like falling asleep. Um, and then you begin to realize there's a lot of things going on in your life that really matter that we don't normally talk to God about because you're praying kind of regularly every time you get back in the car or as you're walking between places. And then you begin to realize, I like taking everything to God. Uh, I like taking all of life's stuff to God. It makes me feel so much better. And man, there's a lot of little minor adjustments that, that I'm kind of picking up on here. And you begin to build this discipline or this habit. And they say it takes 21 days to make a habit. Um, here's, here's my word of advice. If you want to radically know God, radically change your life, radically become the kind of Christian that, that seems like what you'd want to be, um, it would really only take you about 21 days. I mean, that's just, that's just logic. The intimacy that comes through continuous prayer that God wants for us, that the Bible commends to us, would really take about 21 days. I mean, that, I mean that's on the, the shy side. Maybe it takes a month or two months. But you can literally be that person in a month or two months. And the funny thing is, is if, if intimacy with God, like having the right relationship that we always wanted, if you could buy that at Walmart... How much would you pay for it? Thousand bucks? I mean, just think of how amazing it would be to have that right away, that intimacy, that being that Christian that we all want to be in some sense. Like, how much would you pay for that? But the reality is, is if we really focus ourselves, we, we can understand that it comes through the discipline of maintaining constant communication and fellowship with God that literally will only take a month or two to build into our lives. Um, wow. It, there's so much more possible than what we realize. The next thing here is this, um, wholehearted. Ask the right question, read, make prayer a habit, and be wholehearted. Do you know that we often hear what we want to hear? My kids do this. Like They hear like one out of every 10 words. And then at the end of the day, it's like, but you said we'd get ice cream, you know? And it's like, I said you'd get ice cream if you did your chores, if you, you know, this, if you that. But all they heard was, you're going to get ice cream. And we kind of um, can be like that with our Christianity sometimes. There's no call, there's no anything that really demands us to be radical all we heard was, we're going to get ice cream. And so this story in Numbers is fascinating to me. Remember Joshua and Caleb? Uh, if you're a newer believer, you might not know the story or have heard it many times, but God delivers all his people from Egypt. They're coming up to the promised land. It's called that because God promised it to them. It's really, really super good. It's ice cream. But they're going to have to take it by faith. And man, there's some big people in that land that are going to put up a big fight. And they get there, and so they go look at it, and only two of the guys that go look at it really go, hey, it's cool, like, we're all in. The rest are like, it, cost-benefit analysis, it just doesn't work out, God. You said ice cream, and there's, there's big tough guys there. Um, 
You know what I'm saying? And, and so this is what God does. He judges those people. And he says, man, this generation that lacked faith is not ever going to go into that promised land. Okay. Um, but listen to how it reads here. The Lord's anger was aroused that day. Um, imagine that picture like smoke coming out of his nostrils. You know what I mean? Like God's anger was aroused that day. And he swore this oath. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly. Not one of the men 20 years old or more who came out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, not one except Caleb's, uh, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Canaanite, sorry, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they follow the Lord wholeheartedly. So none of the children of Israel, none of them, except these two dudes that literally were radical and all in. And, and a picture of that wholehearted thing is that later, um, all the Israelites that were 20 years old or older die out. God kind of preserves um, uh, Joshua and Caleb. And now they're really, really old because they're the, the two guys that kind of um, lived long enough and now they're going to get to go in. So they're really, really old. And, and as soon as they get over into the promised land, Joshua is leading the Israelites now. Moses has gone on and, and died, and Joshua is now in charge, and Joshua is leading it. And Caleb comes to him and says, I want the high ground. Do you guys remember reading this story at all? Caleb, old dude, you know, probably, you know, operating one-tenth the speed he did when he was a younger guy, comes and says, I want the high ground where they're dug in to be my inheritance. Just give it to me and, and I'll, go, I'll go take the high ground. I mean, all in. Like, it's David when he goes and fights Goliath. He's like, why are all these people that are Israelites that, that, that have this really big God, why are they afraid of, of a man who's really tall? Matt, you know, like, why, why is this bigger than than God. Why is God not bigger than the really tall guy? And, and David, who doesn't even like fit the armor, you know, gets kind of the armor on and, and he's like, I'll, I'll handle this. I'll show you what it looks like to know the size of your God, to be wholehearted. Um, it's just an amazing thing to me. It's the reason Ananias and Sapphira in, in the book of Acts, they come, they give some of their money, but they tell everybody like, oh, that was all of our money because they want everyone in the community to love them and think they're really super sacrificial. But what they're really doing is kind of doing it kind of for themselves. You know, they're keeping their own little bit, giving the other bit, and God like kills them right there. And just says, absolutely not. I'm not gonna let this kind of thing start to happen. I want all of you or none of you. And there's no games. We always ask God, why can't you make it work with what is normal or what feels easy for us? All I heard was ice cream. But God's saying, look, just show me what it looks like to have a big God. Like, just, just get that I'm big, be all in, be wholehearted, and then I'll, I'll work amazing things. Uh, fun, funny, we'll hurry with the next one. Funny story. I'm in California. I work at a church down in California, and the pastor there kind of started, there's a lot of uh, seniors in the church and they had a traditional service and all that. And he started thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if, if all these seniors started acting like Caleb? I mean, just all in. They need to, they need to really just buy in and, and not like retire and, and coast. And so he started like using this analogy of, um, you know, when a, a car spins out and spins its um, tires, it leaves skid marks. And so he started using this analogy of his grandma who had been this amazing saint and how she, she went out, like spent her last days leaving, you know, skid marks, spinning her tires, working really hard. And, um, and so everyone on staff, the elders, we kind of knew, yeah, the grandma thing again, you know, and, and he's just, he really wants all, all the seniors just to rev it up and really, you know, be all in. Well, it was kind of shared language that way. Well, then he got up in the pulpit one week and, and it was so common to him that he didn't really explain what he meant. And he, all he said was, I want, I want you guys to be like my grandma um, and leave skid marks. 
when you die. Now, all the college kids, 20-somethings, and high school kids, they all know there's two kinds of skid marks. And all they heard was, like, did he just say his grandma? Like, you know, what? Um, but in some sense, uh, you know, his analogy, like, if you really explain it right, makes sense. Um, you know, the closer we get, Paul saying, man, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Um, and just, we just abandon ourselves. Jesus setting his face like stone and going to Jerusalem, and we just go all in and just abandon ourselves and say, you know what, there's really nothing left in this life for me. There's nothing I really want more than just to be where God's will is for me um, and just be wholehearted. It's real simple to be wholehearted. Like if you're like, okay, Ken, that's not really practical. How do you be wholehearted? I bet you already know. My guess is we already all know that one thing God would have us do right now if we really said yes. And we don't, you're like fighting thinking about it right now because you, you, you don't want to feel the guilt that would come if you immediately dug that out of my mind. Yeah, I know that God's kind of always wanted me to do this, but I've done a good job of suppressing it. I don't want to really dig it up right now all of a sudden because then I'm going to feel guilty again, you know. But, but the truth is, if you really want to find that thing that you should be all in with, it's, it's probably already there. God's probably been whispering it to you for years. Um, I struggle with that all the time, too. And I think we all do. Um, the beauty is that if we really want to know it, it's, it's, the, it's down there. It's down there. Um, the next thing is this, love your way out. It's a phrase I came up with when I was a, an early Christian, love your way out, because I lost all my friends when I became a Christian, literally. It was depressing six months of my life. Uh, lost all my friends, had to give up some addictions that I had, and um, it, was, uh, it was just a depressing time of my life, and I began to get really lost in my depression and feel a lot of self-pity. And then in, in reading the Bible and all this, I came to this, this phrase in, in uh, Romans, which says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And I remember being intrigued with that whole idea of it's an outstanding debt. And so I kind of began to feel like, well, even though I'm depressed, I mean, I owe, I owe. Every day I wake up, man, I owe people love. So I was like, man, at least that gives me something to do, you know. And so I started just loving people, loving fraternity brothers, loving like other people. And, and um, it was amazing what that did to completely change my, my paradigms. Nothing takes your mind off of yourself quicker than putting your mind on something other than yourself. Nothing takes your mind off of yourself quicker than putting your mind on something other than yourself. The minute you start loving other people and you see goodness happen, you now have a cause for joy. All the circumstances that were horrible, financial, economic, uh, circumstantial, whatever, they are caused to be depressed. I don't doubt that. But you go love someone and you see the smile or you see the joy or you see goodness happen, even if you do love anonymously, but you see like the harmony, the goodness of, of what this world is supposed to be about happen. This is still all the same. But now you have the ability to, to, to embrace something else. Nothing makes us more Christ-like quicker than just the discipline of loving somebody. We have that as a debt, and, and I think it's not an obligation so much as it's a blessing. So wherever you're at, you can love your way out. Whatever depression you're in, love your way out. The way out of your self-pity is not to, to, to whine or to have other people come in and pat you on the back or whatever. The real thing that you're in control of to get out of self-pity is just to love your way out. Love your way out. Um, let's just let's keep moving. Next one, number six, stay in school. We have these huge stay in school campaigns for kids, right? Why? Why? Why as a society do we tell kids stay in school? 
because education is valuable. I mean, right? Simple, simple logic. Stay in school. Millions of dollars on these campaigns and, and mentors and all this other stuff. Stay in school. Why? Because education is valuable. If education is valuable, when does it stop becoming valuable? If we can learn things at age 20, at age 25, at age 30, at age 60 that are valuable, education is valuable. If we can learn things that are valuable, then this whole idea of stay in school really holds true all the way until the day you die, doesn't it? We've gotten so locked into our American rhythms that we think that whole idea only applies to formal education or vocational education. Do you know that the liberal arts comes from the, the Latin um, liber, uh, L-I-B-E-R, which meant free? So liberal arts literally was a free man's education because in, in Rome, in ancient Greece, you literally had like 70% of the people were slaves Okay, so they learned, when they learned anything, they learned vocation, skills, because they did the work. The 30% who were free, who didn't have to do that work, they learned things. They learned a, a free man's education. They learned how to grow the soul, to grow in wisdom, to grow in virtue. It was called the, the flourishing soul. Um, the good, the true, and the beautiful they learned things that made them more human, helped them grow and develop as people. The amazing thing is, is we're enslaving ourselves by being so narrowly tied to vocational education in the ancient world, slaves' education in, in how we approach things today. We, we think the minute we have the vocation, well, the education's no longer needed. But the education, if we really understood it, was always deeper or there were certainly dimensions of it were so much bigger than just vocation. So stay in school. That's what Kilns College is all about. If you're a college kid, go to Kilns College. If you're an adult, go to Kilns College. We just got this two-year associate degree where the college is moving and now we're going to be able to offer four certificates for adults so that when you take classes as adults, you can work towards a certificate. So stay in school. Here's the fascinating thing, I'll, and then we'll move on to the next one. The book of Proverbs was written for who? By who, for who? By Solomon for Solomon's son. Okay? Solomon the king, wisest man ever, writes down wisdom so that his son can be educated and have wisdom. The greatest, one of the greatest ironies in Scripture is that the wisest king ever who writes down all this wisdom literature for his son so that his son could be wise, literally had a son who, when he became king, was the most foolish king ever. Don't have time to go into the story, but literally rejects the, the wisdom of the elders, goes with his buddies because it's going to be a get-rich-quick thing. Because of that, the whole kingdom is ripped in two, and, and, and the whole thing just changes right there because this guy is so foolish. And I always am amazed by that when I'm reading the book of Proverbs. I'm like... This was written for this dude, but none of it sank in. I think we Christians suffer from the same problem that Solomon's son did. It's so common, the Bible, Christian books, theological things, ability to learn and go deeper. It's so common that we devalue it and never internalize it. It's all there for us, but because it's there for us, we don't value it. We don't have to fight to get it. You go to Africa where pastors can't even read or they don't even have a copy of the Bible in their own language, and they value it, and they will fight to get there. We, it's so common that we devalue it, and because we devalue it, we never work hard to get it and internalize it, and we end up just like Solomon's son. The very thing that's so so accessible, we never lay hold of. Stay in school because education is valuable. And it is so common, and that's not something that should make us devalue it. That's something that should, should, we should see as an opportunity 
to pursue so that we can internalize and, and grow the flourishing soul, become who we were, cre- we were created to be. We sang a, a song, All My Intellect. I mean, do you understand it's a part of Christianity? Love the, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with all my intellect, not just what it is right now, but what it could be if I actually exercised it, worked on it. Stay in school. Create rituals, build traditions. Create rituals, build traditions. Do you know that the lime in a corona, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The lime in a corona, do you know how that came about? I mean, it was, some, was it some magical thing in Mexico where they realized that the chemical composition of a lime, if you brewed a beer a certain way, would just create this magical like experience, whatever. I mean, does anyone know the story of how it came about? Keeps the flies away. Actually, 30 years ago, a bored bartender at a resort said to a buddy, hey, I bet if I take one of the limes off the, the bar counter here for mixed drinks, I bet if I put one of these in the neck of this Corona, people will copy me. Just one of these, like, you know, experiment with human beings kind of a game, you know? And so this bartender puts a lime in, in the neck of a Corona, and sure enough, people copied him. And it grew from there to the point now where it is, it is a ritual that, that is a part of, of drinking a Corona. Now, they would credit, like business marketing people would credit this ritual with, with the whole success of Corona. And, and it overtook Heineken recently in, in American, North American sales. Okay? If you don't drink beer, it means nothing to you. But Corona overtook Heineken all because... Like, it's so unique because there's a ritual to it. It's like, I could drink a beer or I could have an experience. Um, and it's as if I'm going to be on a beach in Cancun, you know. And, and, uh, and did you know that the chemical composition of a lime does something, ma- you know, nobody knows the real story, right? But it's a ritual. Ritual, rituals are powerful things. Powerful, powerful, powerful things. As a family, a church family, and as a family, if you have kids or if you're married, we need to create rituals that reinforce and are powerful things within our homes um, for grounding who we are. Let me just, Deuteronomy, this is, this is like the backbone of Hebrew education in the Old Testament. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Jesus, when he came about, the Pharisees had little boxes on their foreheads with scripture in it. it comes from this passage here. Put, bind it on your forehead, the, the rules and the scriptures and the truth, you know. I mean, they took it literally that, G, that God is saying, put it on your doorframe when you come in, when you go out, you're reminded. Bind it on your head so that it's like goes before you everywhere you go. Like create a ritual around truth so that you will never lose sight of it. Um, it's a powerful thing. And we have to learn that and, and we don't do that well in America. We, we've lost a lot of our traditions. We don't even, it's kind of like, I don't know if you were here this morning going like, wow, I feel like I'm in church. We're singing these hymns. It's like, I was having flashbacks and I was like, man, I feel like I'm at church today and I kind of liked it. But um, that used to be a part of the, the ritual or tradition in, in church culture was the hymns. Um, we don't have to, None of them are hallowed or sacred. We can create rituals. In your house, you can create them. We're going to do a family conference in October, just as a heads up, really cool thing. Luke Hendricks, who was here a couple weeks ago from Imago Day, is coming back. And his whole principle that he's going to be building around is this. As a family, you have to create a culture in your home that is stronger than the culture outside of your home. 
That's really what it boils down to, is that you have to create a culture here that is more dynamic and stronger than the culture, the gravitational pull outside your home. And that's really what Deuteronomy talks about. And in in doing that, if you're going to create a culture in your home that's that strong, we have to understand the power of ritual and tradition. Rituals and traditions, they cut so deep and become a part of our fabric. And so whatever that does to you or gives to you, we have to go and create those. As a church, we're trying to create those. I'm running out of time, so we'll just keep going. Learn the joy of being wrong. Create rituals, build traditions, learn the joy of being wrong. You know, in Hebrews in 9 and Ezekiel 45, it talks about the sins of ignorance. In the Old Testament, they would have sacrifices or offerings for the sins of ignorance. And I love that. It's like life is messy, we're messy, and cool. Like God gets that. There's a way to cover the stupid stuff I do, even the stupid stuff I don't know I do. And so it's kind of like I can just embrace that, like I'm stupid. And it's all good, like God still loves me. And there's like offerings that even cover my, my stupidity. Um, I love that. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew. He says, uh, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. L- listen to this now, we we kind of all have in the back of our mind this idea that humility and meekness is probably a Christian virtue, but we always take it as if it's inert. You either either have it or you don't. That person's a humble person. Isn't that neat? You know, I'm really, it's really cool God made them that way. They're a really special individual, you know. Man, they're just humble. That's a humble guy. Um, We act as it's just this passive inert kind of thing that happens to certain people and doesn't happen to other people. But listen to the way Jesus says it. Whoever humbles himself or herself will be exalted. I don't care what your personality type is, how extroverted you are, how how much passion you have in your belly, how much self-confidence you got. It doesn't matter what your personality is. And, and even in some sense, if you feel like it's so far from being a meek personality, that's not the issue. The issue is knowing that we can discipline ourselves to take ourselves lightly. G.K. Chesterton said the angels fly because they take themselves lightly. Um, We can discipline ourselves to be humble, to humble ourselves, and in doing so say, you know what, it's really not about the greatness in me. It's really what God gave me at birth and is doing in me now that's really something amazing. All good things come from the Father of heavenly lights. You know, James. Um, There's nothing in me that's good. Jesus, like they came to him and said, good teacher. He's like, ah, why you call me good? There's only one that's good. You should really be thinking about God. What do you want to know about God? I'll tell you. But, but save that title for him. I only do what I'm told to do. I only say what I'm, I'm told to say. I mean, there's this thing in, in which we can choose to be humble and discipline ourselves to be humble and learn the joy of being wrong, of being not it, of being not the guy, of being, um, in some sense, clay that's usable by God. And when we're not fighting for glory with God, it's amazing what God can do with us. A friend of mine used the phrase, and I think I might have heard it before, but it was kind of new to my ears, but a glory receptor or a glory reflector. When God blesses you, do you just take it in and bask in it like, yes, people love me now. Like, you know, um, or the glory when it comes to you, the attention, the, the acclaim, which in and of itself isn't bad, but when things, when good things come to you, Do you reflect that back to God? Why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. Learn the joy of being wrong. This actually was a title of a book on uh, Easter and resurrection that I really like. Stole it for the sermon here. Um, I know that was number eight, and I said there was going to be eight, and there's eight on the back of your thing, but I came up with one after we printed that. So there's (laughs) 8.5. And we'll just do it real quick. Be occupied, not dogmatic. Be occupied, not dogmatic. 2 Timothy 2.23, Paul talks about avoiding petty quarrels and petty arguments. Jesus avoided the Pharisees, the pastors of his day, 
like the plague. He just didn't want to bother with them. Why? Because they were a complete distraction from what his calling was, what his mission was. He just avoided arguments because when you're arguing with people, there's more heat than light. You know that saying? Like it doesn't do anything productive. It just creates friction. I, I created a, a statement back when I was a youth pastor that there's more arguments in camps than on trails. Like when you take a bunch of uh, high schoolers and you set up camp, man, people start fighting. If you get them on the trail and they all line out and you're just marching, arguments just go away. And so I, I wrote this thing down. There's more, there's more arguments in camps than there are on the trails. Be occupied. Make yourself busy with the work of the kingdom. Not busy for busyness sake, but busy because you're all in, because there's stuff that you can do, because someone needs to do it, whatever it is, go to bed tired at night. And you'll, you'll go to bed not being angry as, uh, at as many people. Um, I went to seminary, I went to grad school, stuff like that, and it's amazing how many, what percentage of the Christian population in America is sitting around at coffee shops arguing theology. Like, Half of God's army or workforce is sitting at coffee every day, 80%, arguing about theology and getting mad at each other. You know what I mean? It's a really strange thing. Um, Do your best to read scripture. You'll know what truth is. Um, But dogmatic means I'm just going around looking to be rigid, black and white, and pick fights. Be occupied, not dogmatic. Um, Let's put our hands out and, and ask that question what's next, and realize that um, it's not about the prescriptions. When people come to me and they say, man, I'm all in, so now what? I'm like, that's it right there. Like, you don't need me to tell you a prescription or a formula of what to do next. The fact that you're asking that question is where God wants you to be. He wants clay that he can use and that he can mold. Let's be occupied, not dogmatic. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just pray... Uh, that we would, we would value the disciplines. We would value working hard. We would value habits. We would value what could be in our own lives if we really pursued you all the way, in this community if we pursued you all the way, around the world if this church literally would pursue you all the way. We would occupy ourselves with the right kinds of things, things that won't burn or perish, things that aren't stupid or foolish, but storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Uh, Father, just pray that through your Holy Spirit, who is very personal, and that we get to have an intimate relationship with, that you would empower and gift us so that we would have whatever we need to do amazing things, extreme and radical things for you, that we would have the confidence to pursue those things. Father, we just commit ourselves to you in Christ's name.